Well, good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. I'm excited to be here with you guys. And I'm excited for a number of reasons. Um, one reason I'm excited is because the Bible says that wherever two or more are gathered in his name, Jesus would be present. Because y'all said amen, I know there's at least two of us, so I know the king of all creation is here. <laughs> that's a good thing, and that's a great place to start. But I'm also excited because the king of creation brought each one of us here for a reason. Now I realize some of you on the way here might have been bickering a little bit, or some of you got up this morning and you didn't want to come in. And I also realized some of you came in with a heavy heart this morning. And some of you came in excited. And uh, that's a good thing. But God brought every, each one of us here today to gather around the truth of his word, to hear the truth, and to hear the truth of the message that for each one of us, he wants to reassure us that he loves us. And for some of us, that might have been or will be a kind gesture of a hug or a greeting from somebody. Someone else, it might be words in the music. Someone else, it might be... Um, God's word today. But the reason we're here today is so that God would reassure each one of us that he loves us and he accepts us. And that's exciting. So would you join me in a prayer? Holy and gracious God, truly we do gather in your name, for yours is the only name on heaven and earth that we can call upon and be saved. And as we gather in your name, Lord, we pray that uh, not only would you be present with us, but you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds and our souls with your truth, and that you would reassure us that not only are you our God, but you love us. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. So there's another reason I'm excited, because it's Reformation Sunday. Oh, y'all are actually excited too. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> but I'm glad you're excited about the Reformation Sunday. And uh, I, I want to talk briefly about that, before we get into the text, because it kind of sets the framework and, and the, the, the setting for the reading today. And so you all know that 500 years ago, uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the church in Wittenberg. And the thing was that he had noticed that there were practices in the church that were kind of putting people in enslavement and bondage and actually were contrary to God's word. And he wanted to have a discussion with the leadership of the church, not just the local church, but the big church, about these practices. And he just wanted to have a discussion, kind of a debate, if you will. And I don't want to talk about those 95 theses, um, because those are a fascinating study of themselves. And if you want to know more, you can Google them and look at them, and you might see that a lot of those things still go on in the church today. But I do want to talk about him for a brief moment, because um, it, it puts some context for today's reading. And the thing about Martin Luther was that he was a really sharp guy. He was very intelligent. Spoke a number of languages, played musical instruments, wrote music, and had committed himself to God. Started off as a lawyer, but halfway through decided, I want to be a priest. And he had committed himself to God with all of his intelligence and all these things he could do. But he had a problem because he was terrorized in his mind. And the terror was that he regularly would come to realize that throughout the day he would say something or do something or speak something that he knew wasn't right, that was contrary to what God had demanded of him. And when that would happen, of course, he feels bad about himself. So he tried everything. He tried fasting. He tried praying. He tried self-flagellation. It was kind of a thing where you whip yourself. Tried everything to get that bad behavior out of him. But no matter how hard he tried, it didn't work. 
And you know what happens when you try and try and try to please somebody and it doesn't work? You finally want to give up, right? And he got to that point and he wanted to give up. So he went to a superior and he says, I want to give up. And he even said, I don't love God. How can I love a God that expects so much of me? And I don't think he was saying he hated God, but I think what he was saying is, I can't love God the way that God would call me to love him. So now what? I'm stuck. And so he wanted to give up, but his superior didn't let him and said, hang in there. This is going to work out. So he went on and, and, and found himself really getting focused on two books in the Bible, Galatians and Romans. And as he began to focus on that, he realized that the basis of a relationship with God was not about what he was doing or something that happened with him, a decision he made or an intellectual assent or something about what he would do. But the basis of a relationship with God was solely on what God has done, is doing, and will do in his life. Now, as I was thinking about all this, there's one particular place in the Bible that really kind of paraphrases that and really states that really well. And I wonder, can we put it on the screen? It's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If y'all don't mind, could I ask y'all to read that with me? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and that is a result of works, so that no one may boast. I love this text because it, it so concisely states that my relationship with God is on the basis of God's grace moving me to faith. And it's not because of something that happens in me that I figure it out or intellectual assent or I finally decided or anything about me, but it's God's free gift. And furthermore, it's not about something that I do or omit doing in my life, because if I did, then I'd really have something to brag about. But it's, again, about God's grace moving in my life. And some time ago, I learned that the key to this whole thing is it's grace plus faith. Exclamation. The problem with our world, and even sometimes in the church, is we say it's grace plus faith plus. And we got a little space there. We say grace plus faith, and you need to stop cursing. Grace plus faith and you need to help all ladies across the street. Grace plus faith, and you need to give money to the church. Grace plus faith says you need to pray, and there's a long list or a short list or however long the list may be of plus sign. And the moment I put a plus sign on there, I'm basically saying that Jesus wasn't enough, that his sacrifice on the cross didn't appease God, didn't satisfy God. There's something I need to do. And so what I'm saying is Jesus isn't enough, and I need to be God. And unfortunately, Sometimes in this world, that's what we run into, okay? Now, it's in that context, I want to look today at John chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, remembering that you're saved by grace through faith, this not of yourselves, but it's a free gift of God, not of your own works, lest any man should boast. And the basis of your relationship is based on what God has done and is doing in this world, not me, okay? So let's look at John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I want to see if we together can kind of see an image here. So Jesus is walking with his disciples. And they come across a blind man, which at that time was not uncommon for the people to be, blind, to be born blind. 
But this guy was born blind. They didn't have the health system that we do, so being born blind could happen, and it happened a lot. We're going to read later that this guy was also a beggar. So he's blind and he's a beggar. He's by himself and alone. Apparently he didn't have family to take care of him. He would have been a social outcast. And he didn't have a whole lot going on. He certainly didn't have any help. He didn't have any hope. Not much looked good in his life. But interestingly, Jesus sees him. Now there's people around Jesus. There's building structures. There's all kinds of things, just like in this room. All kinds of things that could catch Jesus' attention. But this blind man, born blind, with no hope, no help, no family, nothing going on for him, Jesus notices him. And do you think it was kind of one of these? I'm thinking it was maybe like one more, more of these, right? Now, unfortunately with the Bible, we don't get to see the picture, so we don't see body language and, and facial expressions and all that kind of stuff. However, however Jesus looked at him, apparently it caught the disciples' attention because they noticed the guy now too. And, and when I think about what the disciples said here, there's two things that come to my mind. Number one is, um, have you ever, maybe, had someone in your life who you respected, was an authority in your life, maybe even a teacher, and kind of impressed them? You would approach them on the basis of what they knew. You'd say something like, in their, in their expertise, and you would kind of approach them so you could kind of show them that you know what they're talking about. I kind of think that's what was going on with the disciples here. They're being a little bit prideful. But the second thing I notice is they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, these were good Jewish people. So they knew the Old Testament, the Torah. And they knew Psalm 51 that says, in sin my mother did conceive me. They knew that. They also knew in Numbers 26 where it says, I will visit the sins of the father upon the children in the third and the fourth generation. So they kind of knew these things. And they're trying to attribute a cause and effect here. See, why, why this happened? And really when you think about what they're saying, it's kind of ugly. Because they're saying there's somebody to blame here. There's somebody at fault. They had a little bit of a dilemma because this guy was born blind. Now certainly there were people at that time, kind of strange people if you ask me, who believed that a baby could sin in the womb. Not born sinful, but actually sin. But to kind of cover their bases, they went with the numbers response too and said, well, if it wasn't him because he was born blind, maybe it was his parents. But somebody's to blame here for what's going on in this guy's life. Somebody's to blame for his circumstances. Of course, I know that sounds strange to y'all, and we're all good Christians, so we can't really relate to that kind of mentality where you judge a person based on their circumstances. Because I know that we, well, I mean y'all, because I've actually done that even today, pull up to a stoplight, see the homeless person with a sign, and say, get a job in your brain. You're to blame for your circumstances. This is your fault. I know y'all don't do that, but I have, because y'all are good Christians. I also know that y'all, not me, 
But y'all are the kind of people that when you come across a person who's suffering from an addiction, drugs, alcohol, food, sex, or whatever it is, and you see their circumstances, y'all don't judge them based on their circumstances. I have, but y'all don't, so thank you. Because I know that good Christians, y'all don't judge people based on their circumstances, and you don't look at what's going on in somebody's life because you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? That the basis of a person's relationship with God is not based on what they do or don't do or their circumstances. It's based on God's movement in their life and His grace to bring them to faith. Because y'all know that, I know you don't look at people and judge them based on their circumstances. So I know you can't really relate to that. But I think you might be able to relate to the blind guy a little bit. Maybe a lot of bit. I know y'all can see. Y'all can see me. We can all see here. I'm not really talking about that kind of blindness. I'm talking about the kind of blindness where, um, see, I know that some of y'all recently, either you or someone you love, has had a doctor's diagnosis, which doesn't look good. Sounds pretty grim. And you're having a hard time seeing. And you're having a hard time seeing hope in that circumstance. I also know that some of you have a relationship or relationships. Maybe it's somebody you work with. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a spouse, a cousin, a sister, brother, friend. I don't know. But that relationship, it's not really what you want. It's not going the way that you want it to. And you're having a hard time seeing. You're having a hard time seeing hope in that relationship. And maybe you're even wanting to give up. It's an understandable, natural response. I also know, because I talk to y'all, that some of you are looking at your life and you're just not seeing it. You're not seeing hope. You're looking at life wondering why. And you're seeing your circumstances and just not seeing hope. I understand that. I also understand some of you looking at your checkbook and going, I'm not seeing it. Here's the bills and zero plus zero is still zero, right? Some of you, I happen to know for certain that you're looking at November 8th and you're saying, I'm not seeing how this election thing is going to work out. And I'm not seeing where this culture is going. And you're looking at that and you're not seeing it. You're not seeing the hope. And there's a thing that happens when I can't see, speaking of me and you, and it's dark, I get scared. And when I get scared and I can't understand, life is hard. And when life is hard, there's this guy called the devil, and he loves to come in. See, the blind man, he could hear what they were saying. Couldn't see it, but he could hear it. And what the devil loves to come in and say is, well, who's to blame here? Well, you're to blame. This is your fault. If it's not your fault, it must be your parents' fault. Somebody's to blame here. And not only is somebody to blame, you've got to really wonder whether you're on God's team or not. You've got to wonder whether God really loves you or not, because why would you be in these circumstances if God really loved you? If he's a loving God, how come you have these circumstances? So I know that's the real world. That sometimes we have that blindness in our life. 
And when we're blind and we can't see, it's a pretty scary world. Let's look at the next verse, John 9, 3. And Jesus said, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. Jesus answered, this happened so the power of God could be seen in him. What do you see here? Is Jesus looking for somebody to blame? Is Jesus concerned about whose fault this is? No. See, I'm pretty sure. No, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm really confident. Actually, I believe it. No, you know what? I can guarantee you that whatever your circumstances are right now, therefore the purpose that the power of God could be seen in you. That's the reason for your circumstances. Because the other thing I know, the purpose of everything that happens is for the singular purpose of glorifying God through His Son. And how God would be glorified through His Son in your life is the work that He's doing in your life. Whatever your circumstances, the purpose of those circumstances is that God's work would be displayed in you. I also know that because what's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? You're saved by grace through faith. This not of yourselves, but the free gift of God. Not of your own works, lest any man should boast. Because see, the basis of your relationship with God is not your circumstances. It's about the work that God has done, is doing, and will continue to do in your life. So I'm not making this stuff up. I also want to tell you one other thing. When you're not seeing, and you're in the dark, and you're afraid, and you're not understanding, and you're hearing those voices that are saying, who's to blame here? You are. This is your fault. And it brings into question where you stand with God. Next time you hear that voice, this is what I want you to say. Go back to hell where you belong. Okay? You got that? Go back to hell where you belong. Here's another verse I want to look at that supports what I'm just telling you. That you have the authority and the power to tell the negative accusation voice in your life to go back to hell where it belongs, okay? Colossians 3. Oh, didn't go up there, so I'm going to read it to you. This is what it says in Colossians. For he... Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So where were we rescued from? Where were we transferred to? The kingdom of his beloved son. Who lives in kingdoms? Kings and queens. Okay? Just saying. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds... Yet, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before God holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. 
Not my words. God's words. Jesus presents each one of us to the Father, holy, blameless, without blame, and beyond reproach. So if a voice in your head or anybody in this world is blaming you, maybe it's not nice to tell a person to their face, go back to hell where you belong. I wouldn't do that. (laughs) But what you can know in your mind is that's where that comes from and it's a wrong blame. And what you can say, here's a better thing to say if it's a person who's doing it. If you have a problem with me, you need to talk to my big brother Jesus. Okay? So you got two outs. If it's a voice in your head, go back to hell where you belong. And if it's a person saying, if you have a problem with me, you need to talk to my big brother Jesus because he's taking responsibility for me. I am not to blame. Now, if you're doing something wrong, if you're doing something wrong, I have good news there too. God says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay? If we're doing something wrong, confess it, be forgiven, and move on. But otherwise, if you've confessed your sin, you've acknowledged the truth, you are without blame. All right? All right, next part of the text in, uh, text in John chapter 9. Okay, I'm going to read. When Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So what I see here is however Jesus looked at the guy and they noticed and all this stuff was going on. So now Jesus spits on the ground, gets some dirt, and puts it in the guy's eyes. Um, I don't know about y'all, but that's kind of gross, right? Jesus just spit in my eyes <laughs> with dirt. And now he wants me to go wash, and I'm a blind man. What I see there is this, that when Jesus moves in my life, it might get kind of weird. I might not understand it. I mean, how many other times in the Bible Jesus just says, do this, do that, and it happens? But this time he puts a dirt in the guy's eyes with a spit in it. So when Jesus comes into your life and moves in the way that he's going to move, it may get kind of weird. You may not understand it. You may get a little bit dirty. All right, reading on. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar, remember I told you he's a beggar? were saying... It's not this, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? And others are saying, this is he. Still others are saying, no. But he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. The other thing I see here is that when Jesus moves in a person's life, it's pretty frequent that the people who used to know that person don't even recognize them anymore. Have you had that in your life? You've known someone who said, you're not the same. This is different. Maybe they said it about you. Because when Jesus moves in our lives, there's a transformation. Something changes. Something's different about me. Some people might not even recognize me anymore. 
But the other part of that story is when Jesus moves in my life and he gives me sight, I'm going to have a story. In John 9, chapter, uh, John 9, 4, going back a little bit in the text, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of this world. We must work the works of him who sent me. Let me ask you this. When Jesus says we, and you've got two options here, right? We must do the works of the one who sent me. Here's your two options. Number one is, he had a mouse in his pocket, and he said we. <laughs> okay? The other one is, he said we. Okay? Which one do y'all think it is? And by the way, I'm pretty sure they didn't have... Um, um, Pockets. All right? So it's talking about we. And what I see there is, as long as it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. We don't have forever here. There's a limited amount of time for us to do our work and for the work that he's going to do within us. But it's still a we thing, okay? So in terms of we and what God moves in our lives, and we have a story to tell. I have a story. So I'm going to tell y'all. But I'm going to come down here. Can y'all still see me? <laughs> Just kidding. All right. So here's my story. Uh, shortly after I was born, um, without asking me, I was put in a white dress and baptized. Okay? Um, nobody asked me. I don't know why they put me in a dress. There's pictures of it. My mom still has the dress. I think she wanted a girl. But I wore a white dress and they baptized me. Nobody asked me. But that day God claimed me. So that was mine. Okay? Then I grew up, and as I got older, I developed a, um, a really bad drug problem. My parents drug me to church all the time. They did. They did. They drug me all the time. And I'm telling you, on Sunday mornings, that was one of the times I used to really pray. Oh, please, let's not go to church today. Please, God, I don't want to go to church today. That was my first prayers. And I remember I used to lay in bed. This is for real. I laid in bed, and I thought, if I lay here quiet, maybe they'll forget me. I mean, y'all hear that, right? Well, you know, you've, I know you know the stories. Maybe some of y'all have done it, have a big family, and y'all leave to go somewhere, and you forget one of the kids, right? And maybe they'll forget me. I have one problem, though. I'm an only child. <laughs> so one likely they were going to get in the car and look in the back seat and go, something, something missing here? Uh, it gets worse. It gets worse. When I was 12, for two years, and 14 dog years, every Saturday I got drugged to church, to go to confirmation class for half a day. And while I was drugged down there, I had to memorize verses, memorize creeds, memorize explanations, and spend a whole half day while everybody else was going to birthday parties and basketball practice and having fun and enjoying the weather and going to the beach, and I'm being drugged to church to go to confirmation classes. <sighs> and it got worse. Because then, after two years, 14 dog years, on a Sunday, they put me in another white dress. <laughs> I got another white dress. 
I had to go in front of the whole church like this, and we sat in the front in our white dresses, and based on the last two years of memorizations and all the things we learned, the pastor stands back in the back and starts asking questions, according to Catechism, book, page 13, and starts asking his questions about the last two years, and we're supposed to remember. So I was praying again, oh Lord, please help me know the answer so I can get out of here. Well, somehow I got out of there, and for all my sacrifices and all the dragging that was going on and all the two years, 14 dog years, all that stuff going on, all the sacrifices going on, you know what I got? You know what I got? This Bible. All the sacrifices I made, this is what I got. This very Bible. Oh, yeah, I got a memory verse too, John 8, 12. That was it. Well, I grew up more, graduated from high school, and I broke free from the tyranny. I went to college at Texas A&M. And, uh, whoop. And, um, <laughs> oh, man, there's some, those horn people in here. <laughs> Anyway, I went to college, and I graduated college, and I got a job, and I was living life. Started going back to church, I was going to church, and uh, life was pretty good. I had a job, and things were going on, but life started to happen, too. And uh, in 1989, I got married. And uh, I don't want to say anything about the person I married, but she hated everything I loved and loved everything I hated, and that marriage was hell. The hell on earth. It was bad. Then on March 14th of 1991, my son was born. His name is Joshua. And I remember the day because he, um, the nurse was holding him facing towards me like this. And I remember him <gasps> taking a breath and a color flew through his body. I mean, it was like pigment came in or something that changed. And I know that life begins at conception, but I saw God breathe the breath of life into my son. It was amazing. Changed my world. And the way it changed my world is because the world was no longer so much about me. Now it's about my son. But the marriage was pure hell on earth. Long story short, when my son was a little over two years old, I found myself in a divorce court. The first day in court, I noticed that the attorney who was sitting next to me was in a my ex-wife's attorney, was a lady who had sat behind me in church who had seen me at church by myself with my son and presented to the court a document which had all kinds of uh, wrong accusations against me. And I'm telling you, you name it, it was on there. And uh, so now I'm involved in this divorce case that ultimately would go for three and a half years. Okay? After that day in the court, I was pretty distraught, realizing who this lady was. So I asked for a meeting with the pastor who had married us, who had baptized my son. Oh, and by the way, was my confirmation instructor. And I asked for a meeting, and I went in to this meeting, and I no sooner had gotten in the door, and I mean, he ripped me a new one. He didn't want to have anything to do with what I had to say or hear it or whatever. I mean, he just tore me up and down. And uh, I remember when I left his office, the last thing he said to me is, you'll be lucky if you even get to see your son. That was it. So I left. For some strange reason, I went back to church that next Sunday. Same pastor was preaching. 
Use me as a negative example in the message. Didn't say my name, but he told the very story of me coming in his office. And I knew who he was talking about, and he knew who I was talking about. He knew who he was talking about. The funny thing was, <laughs> the reading that day was on David and Goliath. Particularly on the part where King Saul makes fun of David for thinking he can take on Goliath. And that registered in my brain. Because I was now fighting the Goliath system of a court system and all kinds of mess, okay? I wish I would have had David's confidence and courage, but I didn't because I wasn't seeing, and I was pretty darn scared, okay? So anyway, there was a three-and-a-half-year divorce litigation process with more wrong accusations, and it was just an awful mess. And the hard part of that three-and-a-half years was the God that I had always seen and heard, he got real quiet, and I just wasn't seeing him. I'd pick up this Bible, try to read it, and it was like, might as well have been another language. Um, I'd go to church on Sunday. I don't know why I keep going to church. All kinds of crazy things happen there. Um, and I would hear the message, but I couldn't figure out what it meant with me. It was like Charlie Brown's teacher, right? That's what it sounded like for me. Okay? But after three and a half years... And after a one-week jury trial, a jury of my peers awarded me sole managing conservatorship of my son. In other words, this young boy needs to live with his father. Okay? Now, you have to understand, my son and I, we were peas in a pod from the moment he was born. And uh, that was a good thing. And even though I'd lost my church, my home, my furniture, my clothes, my dishes, didn't really care because the thing was, what I valued the most was my son. Okay? And so we started living together, and uh, I wasn't trying to obstruct his relationship with his mom. I encouraged it, and she could see as much as she wanted to. My son and I were living in an apartment, and uh, kind of a funny story was we had this apartment, and he had his bedroom, and, you know, he's four years old at the time, and he has his own bedroom, and um, the first night, he's scared. It's a big bedroom, and he's by himself. So I told him, I said, son, I'll tell you what, I'm going to sit here on the floor until you fall asleep. And then when you fall asleep, I'm going to go to my room, which is right next door, by the way. I said, but if you wake up in the night and you're scared, give me a call. Just say, Daddy, and I'll come running. And we practiced it. And I went in the other room. He called me Daddy, and I came running, and he saw me. So, okay, good. So he knew that. I would sit there on the floor. He would fall asleep. And if he woke up in the night, he'd say, Daddy, and I'd come running. Okay? One night, actually one day, I was goofing around with him, and I taught him how to do this. So one night, when he was in his room, he did that. Well, I kind of laughed, and from my room, I went, and we went back and forth, back and forth for about 15 minutes. And I'm telling you, I was laughing my butt off. It was, it was so funny. It was one of the more funniest moments of my life. And we went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. <sighs> Had him in a school, very good school, a memorial area. Life was okay, but I knew that the other shoes still hadn't dropped for it from his mom, because she'd made a lot of threats and accusations over the years. And uh, Christmas of that year, she had a quarter of visitation with him, with, and her, her family came to pick him up, and he went with them. I remember before he left, I was laying on the couch. He was sitting on my chest, and he said, Daddy, I'm going to miss you. And I said, I know, son, I'm going to miss you too. I said, but God, because we'd already started talking about God. I said, but God always brings back together, right? And he said, yeah, right. 
And uh, then he left and he went to the visitation with his, with his mom and her family. I then went to Colorado and met my parents and was in Colorado. You ever been to Colorado in the wintertime? It is beautiful. White snow, green trees, blue skies. Hard not to be happy there, right? I wasn't happy. I was miserable. Um, last day I was there, I remember sitting on the couch. And this is my prayer. God, you got to give me a break. This is killing me. I can't take this anymore. I quit. I, I, you have to give me a break. I cannot do this anymore. So then I came home. My son was supposed to come home that day. Typically, his mom would bring him late. So when it first was late, I wasn't too worried about it. But then later it became later, and later became more later, and hours came by. And pretty soon, he wasn't coming home. And I knew that she'd made good on a threat that she made four years prior, that she was going to take my son and make sure I never saw him again. So now I'm there by myself, no son, I don't know where he's at, thinking, this wasn't the break I asked for, God. I said, give me a break. This wasn't it. Did you hear me? I wasn't seeing at all now. Got involved with the police department, the FBI, the DPS. My son was a milk carton kid. You know those flyers you get in the mail with the little kids missing? He was one of those guys. Walmart. You go to Walmart and see his picture up on the screen. He was one of those guys. And after having lost everything, and then now my son's gone. And I'm not seeing it. Surely not seeing hope. Life is a mess. So, in those first few weeks while he was gone, I had a real simple prayer. God, if you are merciful, take me home now. I won't take my own life, but if you hit me by a bus, probably be good right now. That'd be a break. That'd be more like the break I need now. And that was the only prayer I had. About, I don't know, three or four months later was Easter. And I don't know why I keep going back to church. I guess because my parents corrupted me when I was young. But I kept going back to church, and I found a new church. Still heard, <laughs> but I kept going. And I remember being there on Easter Sunday, and my folks were with me. And I'm there on Easter Sunday, and I'm thinking to myself, what's the point? Why bother? Why am I here? I mean, really? This is a mess. I don't see God in this mess. And as I'm thinking that to myself at that church, they had a uh, practice that on Easter Sunday in the back they had a cross, a big cross that, would, that people would carry in, and they put flowers all over it and everything like that. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of worship, but when the music starts and, the cro and the, everybody turns around and faces the cross, okay? So I'm there asking, what's the point? I quit, all that kind of stuff. And I turn around, look at that cross, and in a New York second I have this thought. This is the point. I died on a cross for you. This is the point. And it was kind of weird. And so I went through that Easter service and I couldn't tell you anything else that happened. Went home, still thinking what's the point. But okay, maybe the point is that Jesus died on a cross. What does that have to do with my circumstances though? But one of the things that was going on during that period of time in my life was I was hearing a lot of, who's to blame here? There's a lot of finger pointing going on, especially in here. This is your sin. This is your mistake. This is on you. You did this. You brought this on yourself. And I did. 
But that was a message that I heard, and I also heard that from people outside of me too. That was the message that I received regularly. A few weeks after that Easter service, the church I was at began having a Wednesday night worship. And I went to that Wednesday night worship, sitting way in the back, because when I went into church, I just wanted anonymity. Um, I'm sitting in the back, hoping nobody pesters me. And I'm listening to the message. And as the pastor, who became a really good friend of mine after that, he was given his message and he said, you are saved by grace through faith. And my brain, like that one, I know that one. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I remember that from when I was a kid. You're saved by grace through faith. This not of yourselves, but the free gift of God, not of your own works, lest any man should boast. And I remembered that. And it was the first time in over four years that I heard anything from God. And it stuck with me. And that message was about it's grace plus faith plus exclamation. There is no plus sign. Never is a plus sign. It's grace plus faith. Well, from that point on, where God had been real silent, now he got real loud. I felt like I was drinking out of a fire hose. His word was coming at me so fast I couldn't catch it all. It was just coming and coming and coming. I wish I could tell you that life got great after that. Um, but my son being gone for one year, went to two years, went to three years, went to four years, went to 10 years, went to five years, went to 16 years, not knowing where he was at, not knowing if he was alive or dead or eating or going to school or whatever. But I kept going to church, and God's word was speaking to me more. And I saw a lot of really great things in those 16 years, and I saw a lot of really lousy things in those 16 years. You know, I, I actually saw God raise a woman from the dead. You say, well, he doesn't work that way anymore. No, I saw it. I can introduce you to her father. This young lady at 18 years old mysteriously dropped from a heart attack and was brain dead for I don't know how long. She was in a hospital. I stood outside of an intensive care unit with her dad. He looked me in the eyes and he said, the doctor said there's a 99% chance she's either going to die or she's going to be a vegetable. That was it. Those were the options. And she was in an intensive care unit. I don't know, maybe four or five months later, she walked up the aisle and I gave her communion. I saw God raise somebody from the dead, but I was also on a plane on 9-11. That was no fun. So in those 16 years, life did not get better or easy, and I still didn't know where my son was at. It's a funny thing, though. I still had this. still have it. Another funny thing happened. Not funny, but uh, one of those God-funny things. In February of 2012, I was sitting at my desk doing my devotion, and the devotion happened to be Ezekiel. And I think it's Ezekiel 36. I don't remember which chapter it is. But anyway, in the text, what it says is, you watch and see, I'm going to turn your heart of stone into beating flesh. And I tell you, after 16 years, after all the stuff with Joshua and not knowing where he's at, my heart was pretty hard. I had some bitterness in there. And I read that text that God was going to turn my heart of stone into beating flesh, and I thought, Hmm, that's kind of weird. And the phone rang. I answered the phone, and it was a district attorney for Houston saying, there's a kid, a young man in Monterey, Mexico, who says, you're your son. And I'd been through some Chinese fire drills before, so I didn't get all excited, false alarms and what have you. So I said, okay. So what well, do you want to call him? I said, yeah, I'll call him. So I, um, <laughs> I called the U.S. Embassy in Monterey, Mexico. They said, yeah, there's a guy here who says, your son. I said, well, first of all, he's my son. Chances are he's tall. 
Because I didn't know what he looked like. I hadn't seen him in 16 years. And um, he said, well, he's pretty tall. I said, well, how tall? And he said, 6'4". I said, well, that's kind of tall, but maybe. He said, well, let me fax you a picture. He faxed me a picture. I thought, eh, it was a faxed picture, number one. I couldn't really see real clear, and I hadn't seen him in 16 years. It might be. He says, do you want to talk to him? And I said, okay. So we got on the phone, and my son had been going by an um, alias name, Daniel Sanchez, and, and the whole time he was there uh, in Mexico. And I said, hello, Daniel. He said, no, I'm Joshua, and I can prove it. And I said, hold on, hold on. Okay, Joshua, um, first of all, give me your phone number, because if we get cut off or I lose you, I want to be able to get in contact with you. So he gave me his cell phone number. And I said, he said, I can prove it. I can pr-. And I said, are you okay? He said, yeah, I'm okay. I said, are you healthy? He said, yeah, but I can prove it. And he was real anxious to prove this thing to me. And I said, okay, what is it you want to prove to me? He said, hold the phone. I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember this? So, and the thing was, I'm like, okay, pretty good chance he's Joshua. <laughs> no, I knew it was. Um, the thing was, remember what I told you was, that was his kind of, he went from calling me in the night to, was the sign. And he remembered that. Well, I brought him back and I wish I could tell you everything worked out great and everything was fine. But he'd gone through so much trauma and so many lies and deceit and distortions. He's, he's got a tough life. He's 25 now. He's three years sober on a 12-step program. Yeah. Still on step number one. Uh, one of the one-on-ones of 12-step programs, as they say, whatever you do, don't get hooked up with another codependent drug addict. Well, he's married now with a baby, and they decided to get married after they had a baby. It took them a week to name their baby. So he's a hot mess. But as I tell you that story, what's the purpose of my circumstances? The purpose of my circumstances is that God's work would be displayed in me, and my son, and my grandson. I now have a grandson. That was the purpose. And when we talk about the work of God, I remember when Joshua was first kidnapped, well-meaning, good-intended Christians used to come up and say, God causes all things for the good, and I wanted to punch them in the face. <laughs> really. If you run into somebody who's having a bad time, don't tell them that. Because I couldn't see the good that God was going to cause in my son being kidnapped. And so then I went and read that verse, and it says, God causes all things for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I hope I must not love God. Remember what Martin Luther thought? Can't love God the way he wants me to love him, so I'm toast here. Either that or I wasn't called according to his purpose, because certainly no good could come out of the situation where my son has been kidnapped. There's no good here. And I was stuck there for a while. Either I didn't love God or wasn't called according to his purpose, or maybe both. It was horrible. So if you ever run into somebody who's having a tough time, please don't say that to them. But somewhere along the way, still had this. And God pointed me to the next verse. God causes all things to the good for those who love God are called according to his purpose. Because for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his own son. The purpose of your circumstances is that the work of God would be displayed in you. And the work of God that's being displayed in you is that he is conforming you to the image of his son. And that is a good, good thing. So if you're here today 
and you've got circumstances, and I know you do, and I don't care what it is, there's a purpose in it, and it's a good purpose. The image of Jesus that has always resonated in my mind. Now, you may see Jesus, the happy Jesus. I don't know how y'all see him, but this is how I've seen Jesus always. The Jesus who in the Garden of Gethsemane said what? Father, if you're willing, could you take this cup away from me? But not my will, your will be done. And sometimes in life, God's will is more important than mine. And I have to yield to that. And I have to surrender to that. And I might get a little dirty, and it might be a little weird, and I might not understand it. I might be in the dark, I might be afraid. But God is working a good work within us. Um, we have a video, a little skit. I want you all to watch that for a second. Make me your masterpiece. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hi. Go. Who are you? I'm God. You said the prayer, so here I am. That's how it works. You're not God. No, I am. Okay. Uh, if you're God, what does Lamentations 15.9 say? Lamentations is a very short book. It only has five chapters. Why is it so short? I was tired of lamenting. You are God. What's that about? These are the tools I'm going to use to make you into my original masterpiece. I try 
I try, but I can't, I can't be who everybody else expects me to be. God, I can't even be who I want to be, much less who you created me to be. So chisel away and just know what you're going to find. You have listened to so many voices, so many critics for far too long that are not for me. You bought into the lie. You think you're junk, don't you? When you lay your head down at night, at the end of the day, you think you're junk. I don't take time to make junk. I want to show you something about my love. You bought into the light thinking everything was going to be easy when you said yes to me. There will be trouble in this world, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I want you to do something. I want you to look out there and I want you to say, Tommy is God's original masterpiece. Tommy is God's. No, not the way you see yourself. Let me try so desperately for others to see you. The first time in your life, the way I made you, the way I created you. Tommy is God's original Yes, you are. And so are you. You are an original masterpiece. So, this week, today, or whenever it happens, and you hear that voice blaming you, what are you going to say? Go back to hell where you belong. And today, or this week, or this month, or the rest of your life, as you deal with the circumstances of your life, what's the purpose? God's work would be displayed within you. And that is a good, good thing. So my prayer is that you would live in the freedom of the hope of knowing that God is working in you. You may not be seeing it today. Hang in there. God's got a hold of you. In John chapter 10 it says, those whom I hold in my hand will not be snatched from it. And you're being held by the strongest, most powerful hand in the world. Can't get away even if you tried to. Because Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 still applies. We're saved by grace through faith. This not of ourselves. Not of our own works, lest any man should boast. I cut that off there, but you can see it. You can see that, right? Because if you couldn't see it before, you can see it now. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do just give you thanks and praise that the basis of our relationship with you is based on your grace moving us to faith through your word. And we thank you for that reformation message. We thank you that when we, like the blind man, were helpless, hopeless, we couldn't see, even when we were your enemies, when we were dead in our transgressions, you came to us and you claimed us. And you died for us on the cross. And because of that, we truly have freedom. Freedom to live, freedom to love. Freedom to share, freedom to care. Freedom to hurt. Because you will never let us go. And Lord, as we pray all that, 
We pray it in Jesus' precious name, thanking you and praising you and worshiping you because yours truly is the only name on heaven and earth we can call upon and be saved. Amen. Amen.